Welcome to Culture Crawl HCX Podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Ward Jr. And this is Donald Scott II. Thank you all so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the podcast today. Um, I've known Donald for decades, and I've been so inspired hearing of Michael's story. So it's an honor, especially this week, as we um, are hearing the results of the 2020 election that's been a long time coming. So my name is Tessa Kanene, and um, kind of how I sit in this work um, public policy and politics has been a deep passion of mine for a very long time. And some of that runs through my blood. Um, my family came from Uganda and East Africa and my grandfather um, was one of the drafters of the Ugandan constitution. Um, and a year later, which was 59 years ago, and a year later he became one of the first cabinet members when Uganda gained independence from Britain. So I, his stories and um, what he went through being part of such a liberal progressive movement um, that was so brave and so courageous and had huge dreams and visions and later and turned to such genocide um, and such disaster for the country and the reason for which that my parents and others fleed and left to come to the United States and gain an education has been uh, rooted in who I am and almost everything that I've done. Um, so the, the power, um, the empowerment and the disempowerment of policy and the implications of politics has always been front of mind, um, as well as the power of education as a, as a tool to be able to understand some of these spaces. So a um, little bit about how, that, how all of that started um, when I was an undergraduate at Princeton, um, how Don and I know each other. The first campaign that I ever volunteered for was Obama's Senate campaign. Um, when he was running in Illinois and no one thought he would even win that. And then I had the opportunity to work on um, from the state of Michigan proudly and um, had the opportunity to work on the first female governor of our state's campaign um, and in her office, Miss um, Jennifer Granholm. And then from there, um, I have done, my work has really started as a lot of urban planning and urban design and then quickly shifted to understand how do I go deeper and broader and think about not just the design of spaces, but the design of structures and systems um, that influence the way that people exist in these space and um, have access to opportunity. So um, I have worked deeply in public policy, received my um, master's degree from Harvard University, where and after that I, I worked in city offices. I worked for the mayor of Rio de Janeiro the year that um, Brazil was facing both the World Cup and the Olympics, um, worked in the mayor's office there trying to understand and reconcile this idea of um, all the new development and construction and deconstruction by FIFA and the IOC um, as some of these things were happening in the community where you know neighborhoods were being bulldozed down and schools were closing. But the opportunity to sit on meetings and committees with um, folks on both sides, right? So we'd have our weekly meetings with FIFA and IOC. And besides that, most of the day I'd be in the community listening to people and speaking and hearing. And I've had the opportunity to work for the late mayor of San Francisco, um, working on in housing, um, homelessness and affordable housing. And then since there I uh, worked at the Harvard Kennedy School the first time um, where I worked an initiative that was a partnership with uh, Michael Bloomberg, where we worked with mayor, 240 mayors across the world that were focused on social justice issues. Um, and then I took a leave of absence um, last year, almost exactly a year to the date, um, November 3rd, because um, so I wanted to do something for 2020. And I wanted to 
work on a campaign and really get my hands dirty and directly think about ways in which I can impact change. Um, so I became a deputy director for Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And then after that, um, took a bit of a time off with COVID and some family stuff. But then I'm back at the Kennedy School at their first other ever social justice center, which has been super exciting. Um, it is led by the former president and CEO of the NAACP, Cornel Lawrence Brooks, um, where I sit as um, a senior advisor on that project and I'm on several others. So I feel like I'm in a lucky spot now because I have my hands in a lot of different things, but um, all around social justice. And for that center in particular, we have the three realms in which we work with our voter suppression, mass incarceration and police brutality. So 2020, every, it started before 2020, but this year has made that work um, even more important um, and even closer to my heart. So it's been a true labor of love to be able to funnel your personal passions and your history and what you value into work and practicality and funnel it through those ways. So we work with um, leaders at the local county state and federal level, as well as, you know, who we hope to be new leaders, both at the undergraduate level and at the master's level, how we cultivate that, right? So right now, for example, I'm a part of a class on policing that we're leading at the Kennedy School, which has been so awe-inspiring, some of the most beautiful conversations with the students that are part of those courses. Um, and we do case studies on cities across the United States that are reimagining um, reforming or defunding their police systems and the conversations around that. And we would work directly with the mayors of those cities. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a long-winded bit about me. Um, and so this election um, has been really important because it's part of our voter suppression work. I also campaigned um, on a bunch of Senate races and for the Biden campaign. So it's just been kind of a whirlwind of a week kind of seeing everything come through, but I'm leaving deeply hopeful and I'm really grateful for especially the foot soldiers on the ground that have made so much of this happen, especially our black community, especially our women um, have to shout out there. Um, so I think uh, we're on our way to turning a page on a really ugly chapter, but there's still so much work to be done. And um, I'm committed to be part of that fight and part of that work for a very long time. Thank you for the introduction. Um, uh, you know what, I, I will let it be on the, on the record that I, and I'm going to say this uh, for Michael's benefit, I told you that <laughs> Tessa's probably the most famous and likely most famous person, at least for right now, <laughs> to join the podcast. Um, actually, I'll, I'll say as it relates to, you know, your family history of being politically active, I think that's something else that I was mentioning that was off of the, re the recording is, uh, you know, Tabita has been the person who casually continues to encourage all of his peers to be politically active, um, whether it's volunteering, calling, emailing, voting. But then also, I've never felt, you know, I've never felt judged for any of my either lack of voting, lack of participation, or lack of knowledge. Um, but it's been that kind, passionate, compassionate education that I think um, that that I think each each three of you and then you know your entire family carries with them this this grace and this poise that comes out probably in voice but definitely in person um, so I've been I voted Thank and you. then I turned off my phones basically and and we just returned from Mexico today 
Uh, we had been there since October. Okay. Wow. Uh, so same thing I said, is, right? I was like, wow, okay, Donald. Well, yeah. So um, <laughs> I just been out know, here in Michigan, but okay. <laughs> and here's I'll say this. Uh, it was a function both of necessity uh, for mental health, but then also um, uh, potential safety. I wasn't, and, and I think talking about the election just after the election is a good conversation because as we were running up to it, I personally wasn't sure if, if my family would be safe in Austin you know, between November 1st and even right now. I was, I was actually contemplating not returning if necessary. Um, because, because so much anxiety and so much uh, potential danger was circulating in the airwaves related to whether or not we would have a safe, fair, free election. Um, and actually, I, I haven't seen enough news to know yet. Do we know or do we have a sense of who the president will be? I haven't seen it. I can't tell. So from, from what I know, and oh, go ahead, Tessa. You know, you you, you definitely know. So I'm, I'm gonna let you answer no, that you one. Th- no, no, no. Please, this is this is your podcast. So from what what I know, you know, Biden's definitely I have multiple opportunities to now win, uh, not just from a Nevada perspective, but from Georgia and Pennsylvania. Oh. Uh, from the last time I checked, I want to say maybe about two hours ago is the last time that I checked. Um, he was leading in both of those. So they were flipping from red to blue, which is a, which is an interesting and exciting sign. Mm. Um, so now Biden has multiple opportunities. Okay, so what you're saying is it's unlikely that we're going to have to deal with a Trump 2020? Yeah, yeah, it's actually it's actually very hopeful and not even just hopeful, but like the mathematical prob- probability right now is really looking in that favor. There have been uh, several news outlets as, um, the first of which is the Citizen Desk HQ, which is like um, a platform from which a lot of the news outlets get their data. Um, called the election this morning at 8.50 a.m. Eastern time. Um, and that was based on, so exactly what Michael was saying, the key states that have been, the five states yesterday and today that have been important, um, they're just like that for them to win are, have been Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania um, and Georgia and North Carolina, right? So I'm on the Democratic side, uh, we kind of put away North Carolina um, as one that's not probable. But what's exciting at this moment right now when we're talking, Biden is ahead in all four of those states. And particularly the one that's like super interesting to me for a lot of reasons is Georgia. Um, Because we haven't, um, no Democratic president has um, won Georgia since 1992 with uh, Bill Clinton. And before that, it was Carter, who's Jimmy Carter, who's from Georgia, right? So it's like this beautiful poetic story of um, one, him being the oldest living president and he's been commenting on this and to the story of what Stacey Abrams um, has done since 2018 um, to organize and mobilize uh, people to vote, especially people of color and especially young people. Um, so Stacey Abrams right, ran for governor in 2018. Um, she lost to Kemp and a lot of it was an idea of voter suppression. She lost by 55,000 votes. And since then, I mean, these past two years, she has registered 800,000, right? So think of that as a multiple of 55,000 um, new voters to vote 
in this election, um, which is just so powerful. And 49% of those are people of color. Um, and 40% um, of them are, 45% 40, of them are under the age of 30. So it's just like that she has just cultivated this new base. And those numbers might not seem huge, but um, in terms of the, the population of Georgia is just over 10 million, those over 18 is 7 million. So she almost herself and with her organization, Fair Fight, registered and mobilized almost a million people out of 7 million who are eligible to vote um, just in these two years and it made an enormous difference. So not only, um, and that, so that swing, Georgia, nobody ever expected Georgia to go blue. So I, it's all signs of pointing that Georgia will go blue. Also, Georgia is one of the only states where there are two Senate races that are happening for us to flip the Senate. We know flipping the Senate is imperative for a president to be successful. We saw what happened when Obama didn't have, um, you know, two Democratic bodies, a House and a Senate. So it's imperative that we flip the Senate, especially because our Supreme Court is what it is. And so um, those two races were so close that they both went to runoff, Donald. So January 5th, both races in Georgia will go to runoff and Georgia will be hopefully soon the state that decides elections. So it's like, that's kind of like the center of the universe right now, um, both on the Senate side and um, on the presidential side. So it's just like a really, really powerful story of this, you know, Southern state with, you know, like a huge black population that's like changing the game. Um, yeah. Cities like Atlanta, Detroit, and DC have, have, have voted like 93% for Biden, right? So everyone like, a and have been like the most energized. Like when you see the, the numbers and data that's come out of this election, it's so powerful to see who are the people and what are the places that are making such a big impact. So I think it's cool to look at and understand that. Um, and then, and other things out of Georgia are just like, it's just wild to me, you know, like you have the, the um, they had their very first, who just won on Tuesday, their first um, openly LGBTQ congressman win. They also had Lucy McGrath, I don't know if you guys know her, sorry, McBath, um, win re-election. And who she is, is um, her son was a um, victim of police brutality and she was so fired up and um, wanted to get into this. And so she went back and got a law degree, ran for office and won. And that was in 2018 and she won her reelection um, this year. So there's just so many powerful things. I think those pockets of hope, right? Like I've always been like, oh, the South or whatever, which is bad on my part, but it's just so cool to see that for them to overcome all of these things and to see that our demographic is really shifting. A quote that she had after she lost was, Georgia is not a red state, it's a voter suppression state. And so, and we've seen that to be true because when there has been investment in community to be able to register folks, to um, re-enfranchise folks, to educate folks, to deny misinformation to folks and to you know, um, engage folks, not only just at the polls, but at the civic and civic duties at all levels, there's just been enormous success. So it gives me hope that a state like Texas, right, where Donald lives, or, you know, say like Mississippi, that tends to be, you know, the opposite of what we think um, in terms of uh, progressive politics, like there, that there, there's hope that it's, it's just that um, 
information is not evenly distributed, the access to information and voting and pools um, and truth, especially, is not evenly distributed, I think it's really powerful. So I'm excited to see what states like Georgia have in store, not just in this election time period, but going forward, because I think we can learn a lot and it will be a powerful case study going forward for people to understand how you can really shift the narrative um, and re-engage folks that otherwise haven't been part of what's supposed to be a democratic process and the most beautiful democratic ex experiment. Um, I wonder, um, <clears throat> so I'll, I'll go back to, what was that, 2018? I was in, I was working in Georgia when Stacy was running against Jack Kemp. And I remember, uh, some of his commercials on TV. And they were pretty, pretty amazing, actually. There was one where he <laughs> pointed a shotgun at a young boy in talking about, you know, having respect for his daughter or something. It was, it was very, it was a very cliche commercial, but because there was so much gun violence, it was obnoxious at the time that he actually would do that. And and Right. People were like, oh, that's just him being him. We're gun owners, this, that and the other. Um, but then in, in parallel, his boy was closing polling uh, centers in predominantly black communities. And originally, I remember hearing this on on Atlanta radio. Originally, they had hidden the fact that he and the guy knew each other. They made it seem like these were two independent entities working together because at the time he was the Secretary of State, uh, who you know has dominion over Poland. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And so, on top of the fact that he was already not recusing himself, I think she had had requested that he not be in charge of counting. He was also actively closing polling locations, and I remember that it felt a lot like voter suppression is the reason that he won, not because people wanted him as governor. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's the question I have uh, to you. You know, I'm going to consider you an insider. I'm familiar with fair vote just a bit, but I wonder, was it Georgia only or will fair vote go national? And is there any type of effort to you know, turn out the vote the same way Stacy did. I know that she didn't do it herself, but she had so much energy and she, she connected with so many Georgians that were outside of Atlanta. I think that was part of the big thing too, is like she was outside of Atlanta growing a popular base. Um, is there any movement toward a consolidated effort? I'm sure that other states are doing it, individually, mm -hmm. but but we've mm -hmm. seen her be successful. So do you know if uh, potentially yeah. people are going to follow, either follow her lead or make fair vote bigger? No, yeah, that, that's that's a great question. Um, so one, one a good credit. So she built um, fair count from, there's a movement called, that was called New Generation Georgia that started in 2013 while she was a Georgia State House representative. Um, um, that she thought was really powerful, that was encouraging um, new voters. And they did a lot of work and they had a lot of success, but like at a, at a much smaller scale. 
And so I, um, I think she was fueled by the frustration and the reality of the loss. Um, and she said she went into like 14 days, like, what am I gonna do? Um, and so then, and that's how she created a fair count. But, um, and so it does, it does focus on Georgia. It did give, especially to other Southern states, um, she partnered with a lot of other organizations that were doing similar things at the state scale and others at the national scale. My favorite of which is called Black Voters Matter. It's led by a lady named Latasha Brown. Um, she's actually a fellow um, to me, um, at the Kennedy School. And she has, I mean, you'll see Latasha Brown, you'll see her name come up in articles, um, even adjacent with Stacey. Abrams um, in these in these days, but um, she has created an incredible movement that was has been long term as well. Not just about this election day this week, but about inspiring and mobilizing and educating voters um, of color. And it's been cool because it has done it has not only registering folks and but they had. Um, a really cool movement around this, the census, right? And we know that the census is what determines um, how many elected officials represent us and represent our communities. They, for election, it wasn't just about, are you registered? They have these buses that they call the Black Voters Matter buses. They call it the blackest bus in America, which I love. Then they went to 30 different cities. The first city that they went to um, was Philadelphia. And you know, as Michael said, Pennsylvania has been huge as well. We haven't talked about it as much, but uh, so yeah, so they went to, um, sorry, 30 different, 12 different states, 30 different cities. Um, and they have been doing amazing work and their strategy and their structure was like really grassroots led. Um, so they have just been getting energy and motivation and donations. And so their group that's gonna be working heavily on the runoffs in Georgia, they'll be here. For a long time and they work very closely with fair fight which is great because no one wants to reinvent the wheel they have a wonderful connection um they're very much sisters in this in this fight and they have learned from each other and built off each other so it's very cool to see a national model develop um in part by the work that stacy abrams um has done with her own organization um that was also based off great work from the um new georgia project new georgia generation That's awesome. I'm um I'm pretty excited. I you know I think where I feel more empowered and educated uh, is now it gives me the opportunity to to pass along the expectation of voting to my own children. Um, we were talking in a previous podcast about my my own personal feeling around what voting meant, and I I. And maybe I forget, but I just don't remember feeling the intensity or the importance of voting from my own family and community the way I feel it today and the way I will pass it down tomorrow. Um, and I think a part of it is probably some around social media where, where more people are able to interact and uh, influence their peers. But also it just seems like there's so much more, at least visible work happening. I, I know that activists have been activists for years, right? But I think the visibility of the activism 
in contrast with the visibility of the atrocities uh, have created this space where now no one can pretend that they didn't know. You either are actively engaged or you are actively disengaged. Um, and it seems like relative to our changing demographic, right? Uh, more people are choosing to be actively engaged. Hopefully though, and, and this is one of the debates that we have in the thread, in this, in this other thread that I'm on is the concept that people are more likely to vote against something rather than vote for something. And much of this experience people think, right, is, is voting against Trump. Hopefully though, the energy remains and people turn that corner where where folks are voting for their rights, right? Because we've seen what your rights being taken away have looked like. I, I think most likely folks who were not voting were raised with their rights already taken away. And then some people fought for rights, but no one had really seen people with rights have them then taken away. And I think that's what we saw with Trump for these last four mm -hmm. years, like mm -hmm. blocking people from coming to the country, putting kids in cages, celebrating violence by the police, disrespecting any and all rules of decorum. Like it was an assault <laughs> on, on people's sensibilities, which ultimately, you know, is your right to feel free. Um, mm -hmm. And so hopefully though, people will be able to use that energy and momentum, not just to think about what you're voting against, but mm -hmm. what you're actually voting for in the future. I love that. So I, I definitely agree with, their, with the momentum that, that is different about this election, right? I'm not sure if it's because it's a new decade. I'm not sure because if it's, you know, uh, Trump even though I know Trump definitely has something to do with it. Uh, but, you know, COVID-19, you know, police brutality, just, just just the time that we're in right now has created a, a sense of urgency. And, I, and, I, and as I look past the, the presidential election and I look at, at a Senate election, at House, at local levels, you know, even here in Austin and then across the, across the U.S., there's been so much of, a, of, a, of an act to, to do something different, to have to be engaged because being a part of democracy means you are engaged, right? You, you can't be living in a democratic society, but you're not fulfilling your civic duty. Like those things don't, don't go hand in hand, hence why we have the imbalance that we have today. Uh, and, and then as a quick aside, a, Congress, well, a piece of Congress shouldn't be able to roll through anything. Like, like, like that's not how the system's supposed to work, right? Checks and balances. Uh, and with the language and with the law, there's, there's always ways to argue one side or the other, uh, but you have to really understand the perspective that you're coming from and implement that side. Um, so, so with this election, yes, you have to focus on the presidential, but then you know, this is just the beginning of a long lasting change that I see uh, people uh, really putting forward uh, because like you said, Donald, because of our changing demographics, because of individuals really seeing us you know, being at a certain level and then taking a couple of steps back, right? You know, taking a couple of steps back domestically and foreign. And when I think about America, it's like, uh, you know, I was born here in this country. And if I'm not proud to represent my country, what is a problem? 
Um, and I think we've seen that for these past four years, hence why there's been so much of a focus um, and, and a real sense of anxiety about what's going to happen uh, because they've realized how far, how far away we've gotten from, from, from you know, who we are as, as, a, as a people. Mm, that's really powerful what you both said. Um, we're, who are we voting event against versus who are we voting for? Um, one statistic that really blew my mind that I read today was that um, for the Congress, and thank you for bringing them up because I think that we have there's a lot of energy around the presidency, but you know that's that's not all, that's not where most decisions are made. Um, was that there were no zero um, moderate Congress folks that won elections, like everyone that won was a progressive, which is really interesting. That's never happened in history. And what that kind of shows you, one, maybe just because people maybe are having a pendulum re reaction to Donald Trump, but also might be a reminder of, especially this new generation, which we're like slowly slipping outside of this young generation um, and the ways in which they think how change can be made, right? It's less of this idea of incrementalism. It's less of an idea of like, who do we think is electable? It's about like, okay, so like who's just gonna get in and do the job, propose bold policies that actually change things um, and that really shift and like dive into the root causes of why these things exist and produce things that are going to um, create new opportunities and a new world for people soon. Um, and sustainably, right? So that that I think that dichotomy by those that want to do things, um, do do things well, do things timely, but also do them in ways that are that can be resilient, sustained over time. And and you've seen that shift, especially in the young generation. So I think that's it's cool to be able to witness that. And I love what you said, Donald, about encouraging your kids to vote, right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, my parents became citizens when I was four, my brother was eight, my sister was six. Um, and that was always the most exciting day of the year. Like I had, most of the time, they had no idea what these things meant, but they just made it such a powerful day to understand that. But I think, and now, but I think we're shifting to even bigger. Um, so thinking about the ways in which um, folks who are younger have been doing even more to understand, okay, so I'm gonna vote. I know that. How do I make sure my neighbor votes or my best friend from middle school or my basketball teammate, or um, even try to encourage somebody that I don't know to vote, you know? We're in a pandemic, so it's a little bit harder. So I think I was just, I was, I was inspired that even given the, the limitations of this year, we still had so many people, not just voting on behalf of themselves, but encouraging and inspiring others to do the same. For sure, and right now we're living in a time where, at least from my perspective, where where people are realizing just the value of, of voting, right? Because not everyone has that vote. No, not everyone has that right to begin with uh, to vote here in America. And this been this been a uh, a right that has been given to the citizens of this country that want to be engaged, that want to um, you know make decisions for the community, not just for themselves. Um, and that's what everybody's duty should be as part of this of this country and this place. And as we think about keeping that 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 same sense of urgency, is about truly understanding you know what does it mean to 
to be a person living in this space. And I, I brought this up in a previous uh, podcast, just about you know, me being being taught my civic duty in civics class growing up um, versus my parents. Right? My, my parents really uh, weren't engaged. I don't remember. No, no, no type of memory comes to mind around that. But my education, you know, you know, learning about uh, you know the, the the Americas and how it was uh, formed, you know, from uh, relationships with France, from Britain, you know, through slavery, through the the revolutions and many different revolutions over time to where we are today. It's like wow, we've come so far, but we've only come so far because we've been holding. You know, the democracy and, and being being at least being noble for it, at least you're supposed to be. Um, but really, you know, looking at that from that perspective and really pushing things forward because this is just the beginning. Uh, we have a long, mm-hmm. long, long journey ahead of us. Um, especially mm-hmm. when we think about the Supreme Court, which is a whole nother conversation, and I don't want to go on a tangent. Um, but yeah, you got got to stay engaged and keep on going. I, I I agree with that, and I think one of the things it's interesting. Um, these presidential elections, a lot of, we always think of them as those two people um, that are top on the ticket. But I think what this year introduced to us is that there were so many people that might not have been as inspired to to get off their couch, especially in a pandemic or to mail on their thing because it takes just effort um, for Joe Biden because maybe that wasn't the most inspiring. But there are so many down ballot candidates or initiatives that inspired people to vote. And so I think his win, which I do believe 100% from the core of my heart will happen is because of his work and Kamala's work, but also because of the other things that people wanna vote on, right? So for example, we know in Florida, which went overwhelmingly for Trump, unfortunately, they also raised the minimum wage to $15. It won't be initiated in 2026, but that's wild, right? Like, how do you vote so wrong for Trump and for that? In California, uh, Michael, you mentioned those that cannot vote um, with Measure J, reinstated 50,000 people that would, in the next election, 2022, will now be able to vote. Uh, you know, those might have been folks that might not have been inspired by Joe Biden, but wanted to come out to vote because they're like, my DA's on the line, you know, Measure J's on the line, other things are on the line. So I think there's the importance of knowing like how, how do we let people understand and not monopolize um, this idea of like, it's just about these two candidates, but everything that affects your community, everything that you've thought about this year, you've been upset about policing or um, schooling or housing or COVID or the pandemic and unemployment, all of those things are so important. And they're not just important this year, but every year, those are the types of things, transportation, you know, all of the things, even the how much you get paid, how much vacation time you have, like how much you're going to take, like all, even the economic stuff, right? Like all of that stuff is on the ballot every single year. So I hope if nothing else, the exposure and um, exploitation of all of these systems and candidates and measures can be a positive thing. It's too bad we had to go to rock bottom to achieve it. But I hope now people, now that they know better, they can do better and they can teach better because it's not enough just to know that, okay, next time I'm gonna do that. I hope people talk about it with their friends or with their kids. They talk about it over a beer or at work. Like I hope that it goes from like brunch to the boardroom that like, these are the systems and structures in which we live and we all have an opportunity to change them in small ways. 
because if we don't do that, we're not going to get anywhere. So if nothing else, if we can learn something from 2020, it's like we have learned so many things. So let's make sure that we apply them to practice and that um, we go from inspiration to action and teach one another um, in the little ways and in the big ways to make sure that something like this never happens again. And that, because I, I really do think, my dad always says like, you know, when we were little, um, and then especially our parents were little, everyone watched the six o'clock news and everyone had kind of like the same facts or the same information. And it's, it's, it's my belief that if people really were informed in terms of what's going on, how things are happening, that it, it would be no question that so many of our states and especially our nation would turn blue. And so I hope that people can use this crazy week and these crazy four years as inspiration to know that we have to do better, um, and but it's on us. There's no higher power being that's gonna get us there. It's like, it's you and your neighbor. It's you and the people in your phone. Um, it's you and the people in your circle. And if we all do that, then um, we can all win. That was a strong closing. Um, but I do want you to get the last word. Um, you said a couple couple things though that that I was gonna say. Okay, that's it. We'll wrap it up. But uh, but from brunch to the boardroom, I think is is something that's really powerful because especially in this time of social justice at work, and you know I'm in tech, so tech has been the least political place ever, except that in Silicon Valley they always bring them in to talk about who they support or something around Hollywood. But, but now, you know, the normal tech consulting or, or normal, um, everybody's industry is now talking about politics inside of the office because of the politics around systemic discrimination. And I think that, uh, that this experience has created maybe a, a true shift in how we think about where we're allowed to talk about politics. Um, and certainly these days in the boardroom is one of, is going to probably continue to be one of the most important places where people will actually be risking their professional career to drive cultural change inside of the leadership teams that, that probably traditionally represent the past, right? Except for maybe some of these more progressive technology companies, I think the bigger you get and the more, the more invested in capitalism you are, the less invested fully in democracy you may be, but I may be broad strokes. Anyway, um, what I want to leave a question for you, Tessa, is this, should people be looking toward, uh, let's, let's assume Biden wins. Okay, let's pray hard. <laughs> Actually, if he doesn't win, we're leaving. So I, I've already looked into New Zealand. So that's, that's that. Um, uh, but assuming a win, right? And we know we talk about midterm elections being 2022. Would you say that the energy should be concentrated on focusing on 2022 or 2021 and why? Good question. Um, what I wanted to say about that comment around the brunch of the boardroom is that 
it's a very good question. I think it's very important because a lot of times people say things, um, like you said, is like they think of this, you, you mentioned this idea of systemic injustice was your quote, that is an idea that could be political in the boardroom where I, I'm, I'm more of the family that justice should never be political, right? Like this, is, it's, it's not political to say that, I mean, it, the, the deepest part of the reckoning and inauguration of our nation was to say that we are all equal. So that should be the least political thing we could ever say, right? Centuries before we were all born, um, that was the choir that all men are created equal. So for, for that to be, so I think we, we've gone so far in the other direction that just saying that we would love equality and justice words that are written over and over in our declarations of independence and our constitution would, would ever be something political. I think we, we, we can all step back and think, well, how did that happen? And like, that shouldn't be the case. Secondly, I think um, in terms of like those conversations, one thing I will say is that people always think that the way in which to like solve all of this, you've seen all the ads or the statements from corporations is they want to like do recruitment and have like, you know, um, more people of color um, in their room. But I think that there's a second thing that has to happen. It's that you, you have to, there's never going to be a case, unfortunately, or at least not soon, where we're going to have more leadership that is of people of color that are not. So what we need to instead is we need to have advocates and allies um, of justice and all of these values there to be able to lift and partner and be in line with this work. So many of my friends um, that are not people of color can see this, right? So I think that we have to think about it in two ways. How do we get more people of color who may not all be in line with this stuff, but also how do we make sure that we fill our rooms and our spaces and our boardrooms and our brunches with people that are have those same values, regardless of what their skin tone is or their ethnicity, because unless and until we do that, it takes both sides, it takes all sides um, to be able to get there. So 2000, so that's what I'll say to that. 2001 versus 2022, um, I think we need to work on both. And we need to work on 2020 as well, because whenever this is called, say it's in 10 days, um, that's when the work will begin. So I think a lot of people think of the results of the election being an end and like, a, okay, he could finally sleep at night and um, everything's good. But the real work um, really begins when we're reimagining this transition. There is so much. Think of the messiest, craziest party you've ever been to. That's the work that we're gonna have to clean up um, after Donald Trump. Um, and, and people, always kind of think of like we have this like one dictator and then we're dethroning him just know there's an army beside him the fact that this race was so close that is so close right now means that th this is not something that's going away if anything it's going to be more heightened for the time being um your your call is donald to want to keep your family safe right so um, i think we have to be focusing on this year we can be focusing on who's running um in 2020 we right now have to start um, we have to work with groups um, like Justice Democrats and others that have built um, the infrastructure momentum to invest in and support unlikely candidates. I mean, we know because sometimes you're going against multimillionaires and the most right person for a position just truly doesn't have the capital 
um, but has the knowledge and education and the passion and the wherewithal um, to be able to govern most effectively in their district. So I think right now people have to be investing and nominating and supporting people that are gonna do the good work um, and thinking about how do we go from here? And I'm um, just trying to do it all peacefully this year. I mean, do it all peacefully always, but like make sure that whatever happens um, in the rest of 2020 is very peaceful um, and that it can only inspire and fuel us um, to think about how does this movement continue in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't just um, inspire people at that four-year mark or that two-year mark, that we're doing the work, that we're holding our leaders accountable, um, and that we're making sure that um, we are investing our time and energy to appreciate the groups and the people that have allowed us, knock on wood, um, to defeat Trump. And on that note, we're going to close out of Culture Crawl ATX podcast. We thank you so much for listening. And we ask that you take this time to follow Culture Crawl ATX on Instagram and click that like button and follow on your favorite podcast listening platform.